Stomp, a request, which was the Blues Magoo's Tobacco Road, the band's King Harvest has surely come, and we started off that set with Link Ray's La Di Da. All right, I hope you guys are excited for coming up next with Living Writers. Hello, this is Peter Bergman. And this is Philip Proctor. And you know what this country needs is more great radio stations like WCBN FM. Ann Arbor. That's the Cuban Blue Network here in Ann Arbor. Good afternoon. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have in the studio Yevgenia Albets here. Um, Yevgenia, welcome to... Thank you very much. Thank you for... I'm really honored to be here, so thank you very much for inviting me. Well, I, I'm gonna, we're going to have to arm wrestle for this because I am very honored, and Gina is too, <laughs> that you are here in the studio. Thanks for coming down on a rainy Wednesday Um it's it's just it's a, it's wonderful to have you here. Uh, you know, we have a Russian saying that there is no such a thing as bad weather. So it's very nice weather, you know, where life, you know, it's nice. So pouring rain, it's perfect. I actually really like it too. I feel like it helps, you know, rehydrate one, and <laughs> you know, a good a little bit of a bath if you need it. But why do you, the Russian saying? Why why do you think? Um, I don't know. That sounds strangely optimistic. We're a very, we're a very optimistic nation because we survived through uh, we survived through uh, three hundred years of total state. We survived through seventy plus years of uh, totalitarian regime, repressions, atrocities, everything. So we we have no choice but to be optimistic. Of course, we're optimistic. You know, life is so good. It's so good to to see you and to have you here. Before we go further, I'll read I'll read a short bio. Yevgenia M. Albets is a Russian investigative journalist, political science author, and radio host. Since 2007, she has been the political editor and then editor-in-chief and CEO of The New Times, a Moscow-based Russian-language independent political weekly. It went digital in June of 2017 when its distribution and sales were severed by the Russian authorities. Since 2004, Alberts has hosted Absolute Alberts, a talk show on Echo Moskvi. Echo Moskvi, exactly. Thank you. Do that's help me out here. That's wonderful. The only remaining liberal radio station in Russia. Alberts was an Alfred Friendly Press Fellow assigned to the Chicago Tribune in 1990, and a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University in '93. She graduated from Moscow State University in 1980 and received her Ph.D. in political science from Harvard University in 2004. She's a member of the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists since its founding in 1996. 
Alberts taught at Yale in 2003-2004, and she was a full-time professor at Moscow's Higher School of Economics, where she taught institutional theory of the state and bureaucracy until 2011, when her courses were canceled at the request of top Kremlin officials. In 2017, Alberts was chosen as inaugural fellow at Kelly's Writer's House and Perry House at the University of Pennsylvania. Alberts is the author of four of the four independently researched books, including one on the history of the Russian political police, the KGB, whose graduates are running the country today. She's a daughter and resides in Moscow, Russia. Currently, Alberts is the inaugural fellow of the Weiser Center. Uh, and also the visiting professor of political science in Kree's Center for Russian, East European, Eurasian Studies, and the inaugural Institute, International Institute Distinguished Faculty Fellow for 2019-2020. That's such a long list. It's wonderful. Thank you again for being here today. Yeah. Um, so writing as a calling You've, you've written all your life, um, it seems to me. You went to Moscow University. You were a history and literature major, um, so showing a love, I think, of writing in that, as well as the, the stories that are in history. Um, when, when did you feel a calling to be a writer? And Listen, it, I, I don't understand anything about calling because uh, journalism is not about calling, if I may, but it's it's a job, just a job right. that you're supposed to do. So in the Soviet Union, journalism, journalism didn't exist because there was, for one, there was a censorship, for two, there was, you know, um, uh, party... Uh, party type of propaganda that uh, predominantly existed in the media. I was a science writer after I graduated from the Moscow State University Department of Journalism. I was a science writer as it was the only field of journalism that uh, allowed for one not to be member of the Communist Party and I never was for two, not to write any propaganda because I was writing about the, uh, you know, particles. I was writing about microphysics and the history and the uh, physics of the universe. It was extremely exciting affair to do that. However, even for that, once I was almost fired because I was accused of propaganda idealistic physics, you know, something like that. You know, it's impossible to understand this. You know, those who ran uh, the Soviet Union in the last decade, they were, you know, uh, they uh, they were long past retirement, you know. So f physiology was the main uh, main of uh, that was their main concern, you know. They had problems, you know, with all kind of stuff. So I don't, I please don't ask me to explain why, you know. I mentioned <laughs> something like Carey theorem, you know. There are the, you know, there is a, such a, a speculative thing in physics called uh, um, Planck's, uh, um, uh, Planck's wave. So in accordance to this theory, souls of those dead are gathered somewhere uh, over there in the universe. And so since Soviet Union was an atheistic country and everything that had to do with any mystique or with whole idea of God, whatever you and I or others may think about that, 
uh, that soul was uh, strictly forbidden in the Soviet Union. But it was totally ridiculous because I didn't do any of that. I was just writing about different, you know, th th uh, theories that had to do with neutrina, the particle that was that is capable to penetrate the earth. Anyway, that what was what I was doing, uh, the first part of my journalistic career. And then uh, Perestroika came, and uh, that allowed me to move to the frontline newspaper of uh, the Glasnost era, Moskovsky Novosti, and that's how I started writing uh, about KGB. So uh, I wrote but, my... But that doesn't seem like it's a natural, like, what, moving to that, like, how did you how did you get that assignment? Because it doesn't seem like that would be, obviously not everyone did this. It wasn't an you, assignment. I feel like you were a crusader. It, it wasn't an assignment because in the Soviet times it was impossible to do what, to cover KGB per se. It's just impossible to do. So uh, I was assigned to write a feature story on the famous genetics, uh, genetics Nikolai Vavilov, and, uh, who was uh, imprisoned during the Stalinist terror and who died out of starvation in Saratov jail in 1943. He was a great guy, and he created, you know, the whole field of uh, study, and those who do um, genetics now, they all know the, his name. So I went to Leningrad, now it's St. Petersburg, to research uh, his story in archives, and I came across his investigator, interrogator, NKVD interrogator, Alexander Khvat. So when I returned back to Moscow, I managed to find the address of this interrogator. Uh, KGB guys said that he was long dead. It was, of course, a lie. So I tracked him down. I came to his apartment, and I just buzzed the, you know, and uh, that's how I made an interview with him. He was already 80-year-old. He'd never seen a journalist before. So... I did an interview with him. I wrote about that. That's how all that started. And, and I started writing, I started finding this KGB, this NCOVA, the bloody interrogators, tracking them down. And I was writing about them because they were responsible for uh, torture and death of so many people. And it was it was the whole idea was to bring some sort of a justice, at least to families of those who perished in Gulag or who were killed in uh, in the jails. So that's how it's all started. And at this point, for the newspaper that you were working with at that time, were there multi? It's it sounds like a free paper. It was not. Uh, I mean, like a liberal or a paper that was more independent. It wasn't controlled no, either by the Communist like Party. Or... Everything was controlled by the Communist Party back in. Uh, the uh, back in the Soviet times, everything. There was no such a thing as there was. Of course, there was underground press, but uh, it Moskovsky Novosti wasn't one of them. And, so, how did you find your way to the underground press or to no, the no, press? No, it wasn't of... in the underground press. It was published in exactly in Moskovsky Novosti, right? Because it was already the Perestroika time in the Soviet Union, and there was a split of the elites. And so one part of the elite were adherents of the Gorbachev's cause, Michael Gorbachev cause. And so they sort of, you know, they were, they helped Moskovsky Novosti to survive. Many, many times we were taken out of press or this whole circulation was destroyed. You know, there were all kinds of difficulties. So we had to distribute the paper 
outside Moscow by taxing into different regions of the Russian Federation, and people were reprinting there. But it was a very special time, you know. It was the freest time in the history of my country, trust me. We never had anything as exciting as this late uh, 1980s, this perestroika, yes. But I understand I have to stop here because, no? Are we? No, it's okay. That's okay. Um, so, so it wasn't ever when you initially started um, publishing these articles, these like exposés on these mm -hmm. particular KGB agents um, responsible for yes. torture and death. Um, do you think ever it was because you you were able to publish that and it wasn't? It was that to me seems like it was before the time when you had to smuggle it out, fax it to the outer lying areas. Was that? Because the Communist Party, it was to their advantage at that time to try to do a balance or keep the KGB or to, you know, was it something to do with that? So for a while, this was allowed to be printed until These it became good, uncomfortable. These are very good questions. Uh, you see, uh, the trick is that Gorbachev, when he started his reforms, he had uh, to fight the entire Soviet Union's bureaucracy, and whether in appellates like KGB or without appellates. So he, and he was trying to get support from, uh, uh, from the rank and file, from people. Somehow, you know, he and especially Alexander Yakolev, his number two in, uh, in, in the leadership of the then Communist Party, and of course the Communist Party wasn't a party, it was the form of governance in the Soviet Union. So they, they tried to rely on several publications to promote information about perestroika and glasnost and reforms directly to the people to avoid the uh, bureaucracy. So that's why there were several publications existed at the end of the Soviet Union, like Moskovsky Novosti, Aganyok. There were two or three of us, which had this some sort of protection from the side of Gorbachev and Yakovlev. Uh, there were conservatives in the, the same Politburo who were fighting against uh, my paper and my editor and everything what we were doing. And they were trying to preclude us from publishing stuff or, you know, they, were stomp they used to stop the printing presses or kill the entire circulation. So it was ongoing fight, but still it was possible to publish some. Censorship still existed. You know, each and every of my article was sent to uh, the Central Committee of the Communist Party and it returned bloody... Uh, from all kind of, you know, cuttings. So we were fighting this, uh, something we were able to uh, get back, something not, but, you know, it was step-by-step -step process to bring uh, really glassness, openness uh, to the country. So I know you said it's a job. Yeah, it is a job. And it is a job. But it's also something like you keep fighting. It feels different than a Listen, job. I love fighting. <laughs> I love fighting. So that's, that's your vocation. <laughs> that's your calling. <laughs> that's what, you know, gives, you know, real sand to life. Yevgenia Alberts here on Living Writers today. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, we've got Gina Brandolino behind the glass. And you've got Living Writers. We'll be back. Пока земля еще вертится, пока еще ярок свет, Господи, дай же ты каждому, чего 
нет. Умному дай голову, трусливому дай коня, дай счастливому денег и не забудь про меня. Пока земля еще вертится. Good afternoon. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Evgenia Albertz is here in the studio. Um, Evgenia, can you uh, can you tell us a little bit about the song we just heard? Yes, it is. Uh, uh, this is the kind of song that makes me very nostalgic. It's a beautifully written uh, poem by uh, the late Bulat Akujava. Bulat Akujava was a famous poet in the Soviet times. He passed away in mid-1990s. Uh, there is a tradition existed in Russia when poems uh, were accompanied with the music. So, and, uh, well, you know, it's something like your uh, folk music in this country, in the United States. Uh, uh, but, you know, uh, uh, so Bulak Akujava was uh, severely censored during the Soviet times. His, uh, both parents perished in Gulag, of course, you know, as it was a customary thing in my country. So, um, and he wrote, you know, quite a few very popular poems. This one called A Prayer. It wasn't really, it's not a, a real prayer, like it's, you know, it's not Baruch Adonai, right? But it's, it is, uh, he, it, it's it's called a prayer because basically he says that uh, let everyone get what he or she are seeking to get. Mm -hmm. Let smart uh, person get a good brains. La let uh, whiskey person <laughs> get a good horse. You know this type, and it's a great melody and the great lyrics. Um, and very good Russian. Russian language is exceptional for lyrics, you know. Uh, it's very difficult to translate into English. Like, for instance, there's icon in Russian literature, Alexander Pushkin. Uh, all of us, you know, we, you know, all of us, we know him by heart. That's how you, if when my uh, daughter was uh, little, I've been, I was reading Pushkin to her each and every evening because that's what accounts for good Russian language. And Alexander Pushkin, uh, who lived in the first quarter of the 19th century, he was the founder of the contemporary Russian, of the modern Russian language. So, and, you know, all of us, you know, я вас люблю, любовь еще быть может, в душе моей угасла не совсем, но пусть она вас больше не тревожит, я не могу печалить вас ничем. It's beautiful. At least for the Russian ear, it's absolutely beautiful. And it's within you. Oh, yes. You know, that's how you raise your kids. And so it's not only, it seems like, the language that it's, conveying or or helping to to teach or or, or so but also this the soul in a way of it's Russia. phonetics you know russian is much less developed language than english english is much more developed language but 
Russian is very good. It's a very phonetic language. It's not as structural as English, um, but it's a lot of things uh, in, in, in the Russian language is based on phonetics. So it's very good for singing, you know, for poetry. Uh, there were different, uh, um, different rules that, you know, I, I'm sorry, you know, I don't know English for that, to talk about that uh, in, in any decent way. Uh, so, but it's, you know, it's poetry is exceptional. And, you know, when I was, uh, uh, when I was in this country, the United States, and my daughter was four-year-old back then, and she picked up uh, English out of the air. So she spoke like an American kid, but I was afraid that she was, uh, uh, she was going to lose her Russian. I was, and that's I was, I was uh, reciting her poems all the time, Pushkin, Anna Akhmatova, Osip Mandelstam. You know, I I know all that by heart. Igor Severianin, you know, um, Block. You know, I mean, tons of them. There were these are really. These are really good for child's ear in order to develop good taste of uh, Russian language. And it also seems like it's something that just becomes part of your core then, that you have with you no matter where you are. You know, I grew up in this, you know, that's what my parents read to me. So, of course, you know, it's, 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 it's a part of my bringing. And it seems like your family is a family of... of activists like there's wouldn't be a, a like i don't think there was a member of your family that was in the communist party oh no of course your, they were your sister was on like an anchor for television yes right but oh but they were they, but not of course, you you know I've, I, I've never was a member of the communist party but my sister was my elder sister was and most you know my father was a member of the communist party and he was a devoted communist my grand uncle was killed during the uh, Stalin's purges. He was executed on December 1, 1937. Uh, as in each and every family, we have somebody either killed in, in Gulag or killed during the World War II. So, and uh, my father uh, spent his life working in the military industrial complex, you know, creating uh, weapons for the great Soviet state. But as a scientist. As a, you know, as a scientist, but it doesn't matter. He was a true believer, trust me. These people, you know, especially those who went through the World War II, and my dad did, uh, they sort of, you know, they believed that, of course, that, you know, Stalin obviously, you know, did something wrong to the communist idea, but overall it was right uh, ideology. We just have to do better in order to create a real... Um, state of uh, the order of, you know, simple folks, mm -hmm. you know, workers and etc. He was, of course, you know, he was dead wrong. And by the end of his life, he perished. He passed away in 1980. He already realized that something was deadly wrong with this country. Um, and I always tell myself that, thanks God, he didn't live long enough to see the collapse of the Soviet Union because for many people of his generation, it was a real tragedy. So no, my, but my parents were good enough not to prevent me from doing what I was doing. And how do you think that, so that's a part of the equation. And how do you, 
I, mean, I don't know if this is even possible to answer. Were you able to keep re- saying no to joining something like the Communist Party or or one of these other uh, channels that might have made, I don't know, success or something easier or even money uh, more expedient? Yes, but, you know, uh, by the time, you know, uh, by the time um, I... Uh, you know, I, I got to the university, I was already 16, and, you know, in my, my, yes, I was already married by that time. So, yeah, you know, in my part of the world, in, as in many countries in the third world, uh, kids are getting, um, kids grow up very quickly. And we we had to, you know, to do it in a, in a, in a uh, quickest possible way. So, um I think by that time, uh, many of us were already um, acquainted with the underground literature, which was called Tam Is That, something that was published, by the way, in this particular city, because art is publishing, you know, one of the best uh, books published uh, for um, smuggling in the Soviet Union was published precisely in this state and in this city. In Ann Arbor? Yeah. What was the book? No, that was no, not the book. It was uh, Artist Publishing House. Oh. Yep. And that's why Joseph Brodsky found himself here in the University of Michigan, precisely because, you know, uh, he was invited uh, by the professors here who were involved in publishing this the literature that was forbidden in the Soviet Union. And I should tell you, you know, when I came to Harvard as a PhD student and... Uh, I went to Widener Library. If if you go to the um, underground D level in the Widener Library of Harvard University, it's a Russian department. So when I walked into this uh, Russian department, I saw books published before the revolution. Uh, I saw books published uh, uh, by Russian authors who were in exile in Berlin, London, uh, you know, you name it, you know, in many con- uh, in many different countries in Europe. I saw books that were smuggled outside the Soviet Union, which never b- were allowed to publish. Uh, so, and I remember when I first saw this wealth of literature existed uh, outside uh, the Soviet Union, and I never saw this before, I felt so angry because I was deprived for so long from this knowledge. And I felt like, you know, you know what, please give me my sleeping bag and let me stay here <laughs> for a couple of weeks. You know, it was, you know, the, the, the it was amazing. So how do you even start then with that? Like, you know, I was reading, 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 you know, I was a lot of books where they were smuggled into the Soviet Union, like, for instance, uh, Orwell, Animal Farm in 1984. These two excellent books, you know, they were, were totally prohibited in the Soviet Union for distribution of Orwells. You could easily get seven years in labor camps. So they were smuggled on the tobacco paper, very thin paper they were published. And usually you were given 24 hours to read this, and then to pass to the next one. The same was true with Solzhenitsyn Gulag. The same was true with many other books. Political science totally didn't exist in the Soviet Union. Social sciences didn't exist. Uh, Hobbes was, the last time Hobbes was published, this great philosopher, the author of Leviathan, was published in 1937 and never since then. 
Plato was censored. Locke was censored. You know, so, um, you know, we really, and that's what, you know, when I started, that was the reason why I decided to go to, uh, to do PhD at Harvard, precisely because I felt like, wait a second, you know, all that uh, things, marvelous things existed. Great books on political science, great book on the nature of government, state, you know, revolutions, uh, and so it goes. And I never been exposed to those books. I never knew them. So, and there were things that I was thinking about for many, you know, uh, I spent quite a few days and weeks thinking about the, uh, certain things. And apparently, Hundreds of people thought about there in other countries. I just never had access to this wealth of knowledge that existed. Your brain must have been completely on fire and exhausted at the same time. You know, no, I <laughs> exhilarated. Was very I was very yeah. happy. I felt absolutely happy. Ah, you know, you finding it. You know, that's why you know when some sometimes I see people here, the students don't read. I think, wait a second, you're so lucky, guys. You're so lucky because you you can you can allow yourself to read or not to read or to read with your vacation. You know, uh, when you want to do this, you can go to the library, you can download, etc. And you don't know these when you're deprived from knowledge, when you just there is no that you even didn't know that all that existed. You know, it was. Uh, so, no, no, I was very happy when I was reading all these books here. And then when, you know, these books started slowly but surely coming to the to the, to Russia. Um, With perestroika. Uh, no, Glass not perestroika. They came, Glass you know, after the Soviet Union collapsed. Okay. No, no, they didn't come with perestroika. But after the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, uh, somewhere around 1993, Books started coming into the Soviet, in, into uh, into Russian into Russia. They some of them they even you know got translated into Russian, but at least you could get them in English. So yeah. And when did you um, when did you learn English? Because it seems like that would be a conduit for some of the knowledge. You know, in the Soviet Union, there were so-called uh, English-speaking schools in Moscow. These were schools where English was taught. Uh, uh, was uh, taught as a second language. We started uh, studying English in the, in the second grade, in the elementary school, or what you call elementary school. And then through all uh, years, we had, you know, about six, eight uh, hours of English each week. Uh, besides, I, thanks to my parents, my twin sister and I, we were put in a very good uh, English-speaking school where uh, we studied uh, history of Great Britain. It was all gr British English, of course. So we started the history of Great Britain, uh, British literature, and etc. Unfortunately, of course, we didn't have uh, any exposure to, uh, to, uh, to verbal English. So uh, I could read, I could even write some, but I really couldn't speak. Uh, and then in the university, we also we started, you know, uh, English through the British communist newspapers. Yes, that's how it was taught in the Moscow State University. Let's take a short break and then we'll come back. Sure. Uh, today on the program, Jenny Albats is here. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be back. 
beautiful. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? How many seas must the white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? How many times must the cannonballs fly before they're forever banned? The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. Evgenia Alberts is here in the studio. I'm T. Hetzel, and you have living writers. Um, Evgenia, thank you so much for picking the songs for today's program. Why, why, why Bob Dylan and Blowing in the Wind? Uh, Bob Dylan, because I've been listening to Bob Dylan, you know, since uh, I first came to the United States, and then I brought um, CDs with Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen back to Russia. So, yes. So, uh, these are my two favorite uh, uh, singers. Uh, And uh, these uh, Blowing in the Wind, I believe that Bob Dylan sang this for Barack Obama when Barack Obama was elected as the president of the United States. And I should tell you that I'm a Russian citizen, uh, and I have a, that's the only passport I have. But when I read Barack Obama's uh, um, dreams from my father's, he got me totally on board. I just, you know, he's a great mind. And so uh, when I heard that Bob Dylan sang for Obama, I immediately picked up the song. And was that the first time? That wasn't the first time you had heard "Blowing in the Wind," though, because no. you'd found it when you'd come no, to the states on your course, CDs, you know, right? I did, yes. But you know, I was just impressed that Bob Dylan decided to uh, sing this to Barack Obama. Yeah, and earlier you were saying in Russia the convention to have a poet and then have music with under or with the poem, and so Bob Dylan is can do both. He has the right. lyricism, the poem. And and to the the music, yeah. I even remember where I bought my first CD of Bob Dylan. It was in New York City. Uh, I came to see Joseph Brodsky on Mott Street. He was living in uh, in Greenwich Village, and so I came to see him. And then um, we were walking the streets. And all of a sudden, I I heard a song, and there was a store. Uh, and I just walked in. I said, you know, who is this? And the guy said, Bob Dylan, would you want a disc? I said, yes. That's how I bought his first CD. And did Brodsky already know Bob oh, Dylan's yeah, of music? Course. Of course. And, and, of course. So was this around the time before you published the the state within a state? Yes. Um, or was maybe let's... I don't know, jump forward in time a little bit. It was when I was a Neiman Fellow. And my, um, you know, my book on KGB, first it came on Radio Liberty. It was broadcasted 
because it was impossible to publish in the Soviet Union. So in 1990, it was broadcasted um, out of Munich. Radio Liberty back then was located in Munich. And so all of us we were listening to Radio Liberty because that was the way to, of getting news. Um, so first it was broadcasted from there. Uh, then, of course, you know, the new edition came in Germany. Germans were the first to publish the book in 1992. And pretty soon it came out in Russian as well. It's already, you know, Soviet Union collapsed. KGB was in pieces. So it was a great time to publish this book. And somebody sent it to Joseph Brodsky here in the United States. So when I came as a Neiman Fellow to Harvard University, all of a sudden I got a call. And I heard, you know, this amazing voice and Zhenya, you know, and so we spoke <laughs> Russian. And uh, Brodsky, in, um, Brodsky was teaching back then in the Mount Holyoke College in Massachusetts. And I was at Harvard, so it was pretty nearby. So he decided to do Q&A with me. And it was amazing when, you know, uh, famous Nobel Prize winner, was doing a Q&A with, you know, with a 30 plus year old journalist. But he did that. He was, uh, he was amazing, amazing mind, amazing poet and very, um, very giving guy. You know, he wanted, you know, to show me to professors of political science and Russian studies. Uh, my book was only in Russian. So, and he was so impressed that this book was on KGB, etc. So I already was about to sign a contract with one publishing house here in the United States, which was going to translate it into English. But Dubrovsky said, uh-uh, Jenny, you're going to publish this only with my publishing house. It was Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, the famous publishing house on 19 Union Square in, the, in New York City. Uh, so Brodsky took my hand, brought me to Roger Strauss, who was one of the founding fathers of this great, it was the last um, um, independent publishing house in the United States, meaning that it wasn't uh, 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 part of some corporation. Uh, there was a great book just, by the way, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, was a bi uh, book came on Roger Strauss. Unfortunately, Roger left us uh, quite a few years ago. Anyway, so, and uh, Roger Strauss, without having any translation or anything, he just took my uh, Russian book and said, okay, if Joseph thinks that this should be published in English, we're going to publish it in English. So that's how it came out in 1995, I believe, and then it was published in many different other countries. In fact, you know, for the funniest part was that it was published in Iran. It was translated into Farsi and published in Iran. I never received the proceeds from that, <laughs> but I always I kept asking myself, why did they need the book on KGB in Iran? But anyway, that's how it happened. And so, and 
then I think I would imagine that this book, The State Within the State, then becomes part of that library that you described, um, not only across this nation and, and other countries too, but in Harvard, where if someone is walking downstairs into their their library, like you did those years ago, your book will be on the shelf you as know, well. You know, it is there, or for sure it is there. I know that it is there. Yeah. That's how I found out that the book was translated into Farsi, thanks oh. to Harvard Library. Oh, they have a copy. Yes. Like Harvard Library, you There's know, a, Harvard has a great Davis Center for Russian Studies, so they quite a few very, very good books on Russian history and the history of the Soviet Union. There are uh, great minds uh, who are still teaching at Harvard so, uh, on the subject of the post-communist and post-communist states. So, yeah, there are quite a few very good books. So how do you balance being an investigative journalist and being a scholar? Or do oh, you balance it? You know, I've been trying to do that, and you know, but you know, Russian authorities did it for me. <laughs> um, when I uh, did my uh, dissertation at Harvard, and I returned back to Moscow because I wanted to teach in Moscow, uh, so I thought that I was done with the journalism. After all, you know. Uh, I've been in journalism for so many years. It's already, by now, it's 44 years that I'm, you know, in this line of work. Uh, but, and then, you know, I covered the wars in Chechnya. So it was, already I felt like I was exhausted, you know, uh, with all that. Uh, so I became a professor in the Moscow-based uh, uh, university, the High School of Economics, the university that existed as a result of the um, of of the market reforms in Russia, it was established in 1991 by the reformers. So they invited me to teach political science there, and I was very happy. I was teaching institutional theory of the state. I just loved teaching it, and my second course was on the theory of regimes. I was teaching, you know, classes on the theory of democracy. No one taught this before me in, in, in Russia. I was teaching political philosophy. Anyway, it was very interesting and, you know, great time. And I loved my students. There were some nine of them each year. So, but then uh, Kremlin authorities, guys in Kremlin, decided that I was well too dangerous uh, to be near where uh, Russian students. I already was running my mm, show at Echo Moskvi. I started doing immediately in 2004, so I've been doing this for the last 15 years on the road. And in 2007, um, we started this new political magazine, Political Weekly, The New Times, and I became the political editor of this magazine. So... And apparently they just, there were quite, a, you know, there were some other, you know, also stuff I created. You know, I found the group that was called I'm Free. I was trying to bring together politicians, young politicians from uh, different democratic and liberal groups to bring them together. So and uh, to study with them, you know, the ways of grassroots politics that were pretty much unknown in in Russia. And and that is so. Kremlin decided that I was going to conduct an orange revolution in Russia, mimicking you know the revolution that existed in Ukraine, in Ukraine back then in two thousand four. 
uh, Kremlin was always afraid of, you know, of this, what they called colored revolutions, that, you know, people were going to revolt. And of course, you know, I was preaching John Locke, <laughs> who used to say that if uh, powers uh, uh, infringe on your uh, rights and property, then you have right, then people have the right for revolt. So apparently, uh, those Kremlin idiots, they got frightened by that. And there were, you know, young politicians who were gathering in my house each Tuesday. And, um, you know, uh, there are many of them became very well-known politicians in, in the current Russia, and like the- Alexei Navalny, for instance. So anyway, so they decided that, you know, that I shouldn't be allowed anywhere near young people or, uh, you know, something bad is going to happen for them. Anyway, so they closed my classes. And for a year, for two years, the university was paying me for not teaching. Yeah, yeah. They were, they were paying me because they couldn't just fire me. I was a professor, a full professor. But, you know, they were paying me for not teaching. Because you're... Yeah. Because they, were, they considered me dangerous. They were idiots, of course, but, you know. So you were reaching, you were um, teaching these young politicians or these, these young students. This was, uh, you know, after or, hours. But, or so they were like, they were already out in the sphere. They were no longer students or they were no, still no, your No, no, no. They were no longer students. Okay. I never mix, you know, politics and uh, academia. No, you shouldn't do this. So... Uh, no, no, no. You know, I was teaching my kids at the university. I was teaching them political science. And then on Tuesdays, young politicians were coming come to, to my house. house. I was cooking them dinner. And since I have a, <laughs> I had a kosher house, so I was, I was cooking them chicken each and every week. <laughs> but, so, and so these young politicians, so different than these young bureaucrats, like Putin that was being churned out in Putin this... Putin is uh, not that young. Well, listen. no, he's not young now, <laughs> but at some point, as we all were. I don't remember but, him young. <laughs> but it's so it's so vastly different. Like there's these young politicians that are are, are, are trying. There's and then a there's new the... generation, totally new generation of Russians. Many of them, they, uh, they don't remember Soviet Union. So, you know, as we call them, unbeaten generation. These are kids who didn't know what was it like under so so they they have no fear of authorities and fear was embedded in the Soviet psyche. Fear was an extremely important variable of the Soviet political system that allowed to control you know these three hundred million people. Fear was what allowed for the Soviet regime to run the country for so long. So. These new guys, they have no fear, and they have, you know, understanding of liberties and freedoms and, you know, and their own rights, and they want to create a new Russia. And sooner or later, they will do this. I think it's so great that you, they were afraid of you in the Kremlin. And so that's why. Now were... they're afraid of Alexei Navalny much more than they were afraid of me. <laughs> and let's you see. Know? Well, and you're still going. We'll take a short break today on okay. the program. You have Jenny Albats is here. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back. Рвусь из сил, из всех сухожилий. 
Но сегодня опять как вчера Обложили меня, обложили Гонят весело на номера И заели хлопочут двустволки Там охотники прячутся в день На снегу кувыркаются волки Превратившись в живую мишень Идет охота на волков, идет охота На серых хищников, матерых и щенков Кричат загонщики, делают сытарфоты Кровь на снегу и пятна красные флажков Не на равных играют с Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Yevgenia Albets is here, Russian investigative journalist and scholar. Um, currently, so many things here um, at the University of Michigan, also inaugural International Institute Distinguished Faculty Fellow, um, also the inaugural fellow at the Weiser Center of Emerging Democracies and visiting professor of political science. Evgenia, thanks so much for, you know, coming by the station and Thank talking you. today. Let um, me tell you, you know, Vladimir Vysotsky was another, he was an actor, famous actor with uh, the Taganka Theater. But also he was one of those who was writing poems and accompanying himself on the guitar. These, the, the reason I picked up this song, because it's about, you know, the urge for freedom. It's about, you know... Mm, it's it's about the hunters, you know, the, the lyrics are the following. Hunters are trying to put wolves inside the red, red flags and wolves are trying to break through. So mm, Vysotsky passed away um, uh, out of overdose in 1981, I believe. So, but you know, he was, he was extremely popular in the Soviet Union. And some of his songs were this, it was, you know, this esopic language which was used to write about freedom. He couldn't write, you know, that, you know, that KGB guys uh, uh, were hunting us uh, like wolves, like dogs. But, uh, but everyone in the Soviet Union immediately understood what was it all about because we grew up understanding this double language, what we called azopic language. Uh, we knew how to decipher, uh, decipher, 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 yeah. decipher this language. So, and uh, it appeals to many of us, you know, with this notion that whatever it takes, you have to get free. For Vysotsky, it was very important, and for... Uh, us, it was a very important, important notion that uh, people brought up on this, uh, in this world to be free, not to be slaves. And Soviet Union was a country of slaves for so many decades. So anyway, so this, the, and this song is still very popular. And you're saying there's young people now, though, that don't have the same... Um conditioning of fear mm -hmm. um but yet i i feel like in the reading in, in recent articles i think that you've that you've written as well that where there still is the kgb is still completely powerful after yeltsin uh basically knighted 
Putin, uh, it became the KGB became from the a state within the state became the state. Um, and so and what you said earlier, it seems like the oppression is still so strong. Yet these young people have a feeling without the fear. How are they? Because I can see a little bit of how you've been fighting all this time. And that's, I think, maybe how you deal with the fear. But how are they? Can you take a, a guess at that? You know, first of all, uh, uh, don't make me a hero. Fighting is extremely sexy thing to do. <laughs> well, why not? So, it's a rainy day. <laughs> you know, so, uh, I just, you know. It, I think you are heroic. No, it is. It just, you know, it is certain way of life, if you want. Uh, now, talking uh, you're absolutely right that, you know, the KGB now it has another acronym, FSB. Uh, unfortunately, it survived the collapse of the Soviet Union as it was the strongest institution of the Soviet Union. And unlike uh, countries of po- uh, other countries of uh, other communist, post-communist countries like Poland, like Czech Republic, uh, like uh, German, uh, like uh, Germany, oh, uh, Russia GDR. never conducted the policy of lustration. It's never tried to get rid of its secret po- uh, police, of its political police. And as a result, when Yeltsin uh, basically appointed Putin as his successor, um, these guys from the KGB popped up right away. And uh, that's how it happened that uh, political police got control of the mo- of the all the major uh, institutions of the current Russia. However, don't mistake it for the Soviet Union. Soviet Union was a totalitarian state. There was no private property and there were no private uh, enterprises. It's no longer the case uh, here. Russia has a developed market economy. And so the plurality of business interests doesn't allow for uh, the corporation of the graduates of the KGB to take control over every side of the country. So there are still, you know, that's why plurality still exists. That's why my radio station, Echo Moskvi, keep going. That's why I'm able to broadcast my shows out of uh, studio of University of Michigan on a uh, uh, weekly basis. That's why, you know, we're still... Cap- it's not easy. There is, you know, censorship existed. There are so few of us left. But still, it's all plausible. So it's not the Soviet Union. Russia is going into circles, it's true. But sooner or later, you know, it will become a normal... Uh, democratically uh, uh, normal democracy. It just takes uh, more time than we uh, uh, used to dream about. So because of the market and because people are able to be getting money or so and and having this power in business, um, there's this, this is like, there's a hope for it. Because I was thinking it, it was, I thought I read in one of your earlier articles that um 
anyone who's a businessman who is thinking of uh, funding some other, like a young politician, they have to go through the Kremlin, bring the cash to the Kremlin first. And so, in effect, uh, Putin was controlling, you know, so there's no, there's... there's... It's true, but not, uh, it's not all truth. Okay. There are businessmen who have who have to go through Kremlin, uh, but there are those who refuse to do that. They were forced to, uh, many of them forced to leave the country, but, and there are less than, you know, fingers on my one hand of those uh, uh, businessmen who are ready to sponsor independent magazines like mine or independent politicians like Alexei Navalny, etc. But still, these people do exist. And especially uh, these people do exist in the new economy, in the internet-based economy. They can be stationed in Dublin. They can, be, they can live in London, but they find ways and means to support uh, the democratic opposition in Russia. Uh, it's very important that you know, people are capable to make money outside the state. It's not just that, you know, they, uh, they're capable to create their businesses. They're capable to provide uh, uh, working places for people so outside the realm of state. So in the Soviet Union, there was nothing but state. But in Russia, uh, there, is, there is the possibility to re- leave and to work uh, and not be dependable upon the Russian state uh, as such. And so the value of democracy is not completely like debunked after like the chaos of like our last elections and what seems to be happening across the the world where there's a rise in nationalism. And, you know, it seems as if like it's it's still you mean the, in Russia, the Russian people don't 2016 think that, elections. Yes, and and so and the Russian people don't necessarily think. Yeah, it's all it's all ridiculous. It's just one. It's a it's a different name for Listen, the same there thing. There is no such a thing as Russian people. As it's there like, is no such a thing. Yeah, speak for as everyone, Virginia. Right. <laughs> so, uh, um, but you know, we see that you know. I'm, I'm not here to judge uh, American presidents and American elections, but for sure your institutions of American democracy uh, showed over the period of last three years that they're capable to withstand the authoritarian politics. Uh, you have a very, very strong uh, uh, institutions. Uh, no, I'm serious about that. Look what Congress is doing now. That's precisely because you have immune system that is capable to withstand autocrats. That's very important. That was the biggest question back in 2016, whether American democracy was going to withstand it or not. And now we see that they, it is. It's capable of doing this. So it's an extremely interesting uh, time that we live now, and we are going to see how this will develop. The new times. Hmm. Yeah, you know, you're... I hope that, you know, it's just, uh, listen, you went through, in this country, you went through McCarthy period. You went through the time when, you know, when uh, African-Americans basically, you know, uh, were slaves here, when in, uh, you know, across the York Capitol uh, Hill, across the river, there were dual stops for 
white and for blacks it was you know just you know 40 what whatever 60 70 years ago no in 60 1961 you had stops but bus stops like that so you went through different time period of in this country as well and your democracy still you know it's it was able to survive through all that so hopefully it will Yes, knock on wood. And yes, and st- knock on wood. <laughs> exactly, that's what I'm going to do. Because it's important for all of us across the globe. And reading and writing, and thanks to your good work to and your voice out there fighting. <laughs> um, thanks to give Jenia Alberts for being on today's program. Please thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you. Um, thank you. Uh, thanks to y'all out there for listening. Um, thanks to Frank Uli for post-production. Thanks to Gina for engineering today. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. This is the Daily Sports Report. I am Jake Karalexis, and we are live on 88.3.